Happy New Year. Woo. Let's make it count. Let's make the most of it. Let's start it off right. That's, we're going to study an uh, attribute of God today that is honestly just astonishing, if nothing else, but also inspiring and, and motivating to, for life change. And we're going to look at that. Uh, we're going to look at that while we look at a passage that you, I don't think you've ever heard this taught from a sermon in your life. Uh, because, well, you'll see, there's a reason. I, I taught this in 1993 and was told never to do that again. So uh, that, that guy's gone now, so I'm going to give it another run and <clears throat> try to make the most of it. Okay, so before that, uh, let's play a little game. Uh, we do this in the car sometimes. It's called Anytime, Anywhere. Anytime, Anywhere. You know, on a long road trip, trying to fill the void. Anytime, Anywhere is you could, what would you do, where would you live if you could live at any time in human history, at any, in any place on the planet, anywhere in the world, what would you do? Well, where would you be? What would your life be like? Okay, can you think about that for a second? Anytime, anywhere. I'll never forget the first time Melinda and I played this on, on one of our trips, and uh, I went first, and I said, well, <laughs> I wouldn't be married. <laughs> <laughs> mm, still trying to get that one back. So there's some context. You have to understand the context of this because anytime, anywhere for me, I would be a World War II fighter pilot, you know, back, back when it was like real dog fighting, fly by cable and, 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 you know, I don't know. And when you play anytime, anywhere, by the way, you're, you always win. Okay. So it's not like I get shot before the wheels ever came off the tarmac. So I'd be out there flying a, a Corsair in the Pacific or a P-51 Mustang and the side of the fuselage would be just covered in enemy flags. <laughs> and so I wouldn't be married because I wouldn't want a lovely wife back home wondering, you know, how I was doing, if I was dead or alive and that sort of thing. So it was, it was, for, it was for care. It was my concern for my wife. Yeah, it didn't go over then either. And so after about 90 minutes of very long silence, Melinda said, okay, I want to play. I would be Fred Astaire's dance partner. And I wouldn't be married. <laughs> Zing. <clears throat> All right, so hold that thought. Anytime, anywhere. Anytime, anywhere. We're going to look now at 1 Samuel chapter 23. If you want to turn there, that'd be great. Uh, here's the context of the story we're about to read. It's during the United Kingdom period, and at this time, uh, the king is named Saul, and there's his, the soon-to-be king is David. David has already been anointed as the next king. Saul, or David killed Goliath, that, that David. But in, until that transition takes place, the king, Saul, is literally insane with jealousy and wants to kill David. He's going to use all of his kingly resources to hunt down David like a rabid dog. And that David now, with, he's got a, a following at this point, and he's, he's just hiding in various places like a forest and in, in caves, trying to just stay alive so he can fulfill the prophecies of becoming the next king. Now, while he's doing that, God speaks to David and says, there's this small town called Kalia, and they're being invaded, actually besieged by the Philistines, right? Philistines, the really bad people, and, and they're destroying it. 
as we speak, and you, David, need to take your men and go save Kalia. So he goes to his guys, and he says, okay, let's tack up, guys. We're on a mission from God. We're going to go and save Kalia. And they said, fighting a war on two fronts, we're not doing that. And the Philistines are better armored than we are. Why don't you go back and, and check, check in with God, make sure you heard that right. So David goes back, hears from the Lord again, and the Lord says, oh, I'm going to give you this victory, and you're going to win and win big. That's where we pick it up in verse 5. And so David and his men went to Kalia, and they fought the Philistines and carried off their livestock. He inflicted, God did, God inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Kalia. Now, that's not the teaching point. You'd think it would be, but it, no, there's more. Actually, there's less. It goes on. They're comfort- David is comfortably living in the safety of Kalia. In verse 7, it says, And when it was told to Saul that David had come to Kalia, Saul said, God has delivered him into my hands, for he has shut himself into, uh, in by entering a city with double gates and bars. And what that means is, is Kalia is such a small town or city, whatever, that it only has one place of, of entry and exit, just one place of gate and bars. And so <laughs> Saul is looking at that as like, oh, this is a God-ordained thing. I mean, this is an easy kill. This is fish, you know, just shooting fish in a barrel. So he calls up all of his troops in verse 8. So Saul summons all the people of war to go down to Kalia to besiege David and his men. Now, David knows that Saul knows. So David said, Yahweh, God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Kalia and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Kalia surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Yahweh, you know, talk to me. Yahweh, God of Israel, tell your servant. And Yahweh said, yep, he will. Okay, okay. Again, David asks, will the citizens of Kalia surrender me? To the men uh, and my men to Saul. And Yahweh said, Yep, they will. So David and his men, about 600 in number now, left Kalia and kept moving from place to place. And then when Saul was told that David had escaped from Kalia, he didn't even go down there. And so David stayed in the wilderness in the strongholds and remained in the hill country in the wilderness of Ziph. <laughs> that's, that's our passage. That's why no one ever teaches on it right there, because nothing happened. I mean, like nothing happened. And this is the bigger point, is that, is that God knew nothing was going to happen before nothing ever happened. God knew nothing was going to happen in eternity past. God knew that, and he knew that for sure. And that's what we're going to hear about today. He, God knew what would happen. Remember that. He knew what would happen if David stayed. He knew what would happen if Saul came down. He knew what would happen if Saul came against the people of Kalia. He knew what would happen, and David would die, and so David left, and so Saul never left, and so (laughs) nothing happened. So that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about the attribute of God, about his knowledge. The word is omniscience. It means omni means all, and science means knowledge. It means that God knows all that will happen. But true omniscience, the biblical understanding of omniscience is God not only knows what will happen, he knows what won't happen. 
He knows what won't, will never happen. God, it, I'll, I'll rewrite the definition. Omniscience applies to events that do not nor will not ever exist. Omni means all. And that means that God knows what will happen, what would happen, what could happen, what can't happen. That's what it means when we say that God is omniscient. The doctrine of, of omniscience, the doctrine of God all-knowing, has been debated and studied for literally millennia. And uh, this particular interpretation of omniscience I was exposed to in 1984 and have continued to study it because I, I love this interpretation of what, it, what omniscience means. That's what, that's what we're going to try to do today is explain the depth of omniscience. And that is that it's, it's like three types of knowledge. There's three different parts to omniscience. And uh, do it across the stage here. The first part, uh, scholars, this goes Thomas Aquinas, um, Molina, some other scholars I'll mention in a few minutes, but they'll start with what's called natural knowledge, three types of knowledge. Natural knowledge is part of God's nature. That's why it's called natural. And it's completely independent of his sovereignty or his power, like his omnipower. It's, it's, it's passive. He, God hasn't made any choices to create. He is negotiating all the things that could possibly happen. God knows all possible universes, all possible worlds, almost an infinite amount of hypotheticals. Right? If you can imagine if we were just born straight into heaven, can you imagine that? God, that's part of his natural knowledge or a creation where there were no angels, those sorts of things. So it's all of that hypothetical without choice. And that's called his natural knowledge. And then over here, they'll, they'll say this is what's called free knowledge because it's after God has freely chosen to show himself to be sovereign and powerful and freely choose to create. And these are the things that will happen. And God knows what will happen. Absolutely. Because he foresees them and knows that they will come into fruition. Now between natural knowledge and free knowledge, hold on, scholars will say there's something in the middle called middle knowledge. I know that kind of built that up and it didn't like, anyway. Middle knowledge is, again, Thomas Aquinas, a Jesuit priest named Molina, kind of put some pen to it to describe it. Modern scholars, William Lane Craig and Alvin Plantinga, if you know those names. William Lane Craig writes this about middle knowledge. I would venture to say this, that, this is the, that middle knowledge is the single most fruitful theological concept I have ever encountered. It inspires the perseverance of the saints, he says. It helps us understand the problem of evil and the existence of hell. Middle knowledge is talking about what would happen. This is what could happen. This is what will happen. It precedes God's choice. It's what, it, it's what would happen. It is, here's a quote from Molina. An absolutely complete, unlimited deliberation in every possible choice freely initiated by every soul. In middle knowledge, God's taking, he's considering all the things over here in, in his natural knowledge. And before he makes this choice, he looks at every opportunity of every circumstance in every situation of every human soul and what choices they would make. And then knows those 
all but infinite possibilities. And then he makes a choice, and this is the creation we're in right now. <laughs> Let me just summarize in case you're getting dizzy. Natural knowledge, what could happen. Middle knowledge, what would happen if. What if, what if, what if, what if. You know, different, different set of parents, different time, different place. Okay, And then free knowledge, he makes the choice. Free knowledge, this is what will happen. What could, what would, what will happen. And so when David is living in this space and time and says, well, what would, what would happen if Saul comes down here? What would happen if the people of Kalia find out that Saul's coming? What would happen? God says, oh, they're going to turn, turn you over to them. How did you know that, God? I negotiated that over here in middle knowledge. That's one of the almost infinite things that I considered. And that's why I'm telling you ahead of time. And that's why you're leaving. And that's why nothing happened that day. Now, you might be thinking, uh, boy, I wish I would have slept in today. Oh, no. You might be thinking, this is, so, this is beyond my understanding. It's not because we practice, we practice these kinds of knowledge on a somewhat regular basis. So let's go to lunch after church. Here's the things that we could. These are all the realms of possibilities of the things that we could have. We could go to Jason's Deli. We could go to Schlotz. We could go to McDonald's. We could go to uh, Aviator Pizza. We could go to any, like the domain. Now there's another, like, see how it just keeps growing. And then those are the possibilities that we could do. When we look at middle knowledge, it's natural knowledge. When we go to middle knowledge, we look at every menu <laughs> on every one of those restaurants. And negotiate with everyone else making the decision. And then we start talking about, but what if the kids don't behave? Like, what if one of them melts down, one of them's in a bad mood, the two girls are fighting? Oh, it's like, okay, we need a playground. Okay, so now we're going to make a decision based on all the other people's free wills pinging off each other. And then you make a choice. We're going to Aviator Pizza because they have a playground. And I'm going to order the pepperoni pizza. And you know why? You know that I'm going to... Because you know me, and I always order the pepperoni pizza there. Because of innate knowledge of who I am, but it's, a free, it's after the free choice. So, this, I, this understanding, this deeper understanding of the omniscience of God, that it's not just the possibilities of his natural knowledge, and not just after his choice of, of choosing, and then now he knows things because he foreknows those things. The idea of middle knowledge and his consideration of every possible <laughs> choice that a person can make in any lifetime has several applications for us. One of them that I'm particularly attracted to is it, is it exalts the dignity of human freedom. Sometimes, and especially these days, when you hear people talk about Reformed theology or total Reformed theology, and particularly Calvinism, their commitment to the you know, the sovereign power of God, those hard attributes of God, they speak in ways that take away free will and end up pushing God into a place where he's morally responsible for sin <laughs> and, and evil because he made that happen. And when you consider someone being condemned to hell for eternity, in their interview they say, well, I never really felt like I had much of a choice and the response is, yeah, you didn't. You really didn't have a choice. God chose for you. And here you are. 
So <laughs> this kind of omniscience with middle knowledge involved is saying, look, God considered every possibility of every life that you could have ever lived and every choice that you could have made that kept pinging and making other, you know, uh, uh, strings of reality. And not just what like, could happen, but everything that would happen and has made decisions based on that. Every creation, every person freely choosing is how God made his ultimate choice to bring this existence into reality. Another good quote. This omniscience is so intense that it knows every single person and every possible could and every possible would. Another great application for this deeper understanding of omniscience, of God knowing all things, is the problem of evil and what's called the best of all possible worlds. The best of all possible worlds. Uh, again, the scholar from the 1700s, uh, Leibniz, that some of you may have read, he came up with this theory or popularized it called the best possible worlds, best of all possible worlds. Uh, Alvin Plantinga, a modern scholar and philosopher in uh, the book God, Freedom, and Evil, brings that up. It's called Leibniz's optimism. And the, the belief is this, that if God is the problem of evil, right, if God is all powerful and God is all knowing and God is all loving, then why all the evil everywhere? And Leibniz's response is, okay, well, if God is all powerful and all knowing, then he would know how and could create any world or no world, but he would create the best possible world. And if God is all powerful and all knowing and all loving, he would create the best possible, most loving world that could ever exist, the best possible world. In other words, if you're over here in this world saying, and I would say, can, can you imagine a world that would have less evil? And while you're trying to answer that question, God would say, like he did with David, yeah, I, I thought of that one too, but it didn't work. I've thought through every possible world. And the most loving world is the one that I created because that's my nature. He would have made a world different if it could be more loving. Still another application. And if you blacked out, if you could come back right now, it'd be great. Okay. The staggering importance of living for Christ today. The staggering importance of living for Christ today. This is the best possible world for you. It's the best possible world for me. Anytime, anywhere is not a game for God. It was completely negotiated from his natural knowledge to his middle knowledge to his choice and now to this free choice, free knowledge. If there, was a, if there was a better place to put you, God would have put you there. If there was a better time in the timeline of history, could have placed you there. No sweat on his brow. This is the best possible life that you could ever live for the glory of God. Look at it this way. <clears throat> Instead of a throne where Jesus sits and rules, or Yahweh, the father, the Trinitarian father, think of it as a director's chair. 
And all of creation that he's chosen in his free will has been negotiated with what could happen and what would happen. We see this is the real, he's directing, the movie is called God Be the Glory. And each one of these little slides, let's just pretend, is a single life. And God looks at this single life in middle knowledge and looks at every opportunity that this person could have, raised anywhere in the world, at any time in the world, in comfortable circumstances or evil. He could have been raised by good Christian family and went to good Christian schools and even taught at a seminary, whatever it might be. And no matter where this person lives, no matter when this person lives, they hate God because they don't like to compete for worship. They want to be worshiped and they want to kill. They love death and they love themselves being exalted. Oh my. And God says, that's okay. And he looks at his reel and says, you know what? I'm making myself known in around 1300 BC. I'll patch him right into there because I'm looking for someone that'll go all 10 rounds with me. I'll give him the whole kingdom. I'll name him Pharaoh. He'll think he's a god. And when I come out and show myself to who I am and for the first time introduce myself to all the creation, Yahweh, in chapter Genesis, Exodus chapter 3 and then formally in chapter 5, Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? Who is Yahweh that I should let his people go? No, I will not obey Yahweh. And then <laughs> the rounds begin. And God's going to use Pharaoh. And poor Pharaoh, he can only go seven rounds and he's getting tired. And just like a good egotistical fighter that's losing badly, he goes to his corner and says, look, I, wanna, I could still win this thing, man. Give me a shot right in the heart of that adrenaline, and I can, I can make it another three rounds. And so even in the book of Exodus where it says God hardens Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh would say, thank you. Can you do it again in the eighth round? And so God says, yeah, I can use that. Because I, <laughs> you're, in every would happen, you're going to be evil. And you could be forgotten or you could be used by God. And that's... That's how it works. That's how he uses every life. There's no extras in this film, in this storyline, to God be the glory, though a lot of people live as though nothing matters, and they live for themselves. There's only one star. It's Jesus Christ. And even Jesus is pointing to the theme, to God be the glory. And when we try to be the star, it doesn't work. It wasn't what it was meant to be. He can take any life and look at all the opportunities and all the possibilities and place them in the key role that they could make the most at the right time and the right place. Esther. <laughs> you can look at a person that, let's just say, compromised. Uh, her, she was... Um, her caretaker was her uncle, Mordecai, and while the faithful of Israel went back to Jerusalem and back to Israel because they were given that permission, there were some that wanted to stay back in Persia, and it's, you know, it was comfortable there. It was nice. It was civilized. 
And so they stayed back. Some would say that's a compromise. God can use that. <laughs> he understood all the things that would happen. And maybe not too soon after that, the crazy king it steals Esther from the arms of her uncle, Mordecai. She loses, she's exposed to evil. She loses her virtue at the hands of a demon-possessed king. And then, in the language of Esther, somehow finds favor with him. God has her find favor with him, and she becomes the queen. And as part of the storyline, one of the cabinet members of, of this king is in every life <laughs> that he could ever live, in every hypothetical, he hates God and his people, and he wants to kill the Jews, all the Jews. And he's going to put them right in that storyline. And now it'll be up to Esther if she plays her part. God's will be done. He knows what will happen. It's up to her to decide what would happen and how she's going to play her part. The whole idea of omniscience and human freedom is played out in a single sentence. Esther 4 verse 14 says, and if you remain silent, this is Esther, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from some other place. God will still rule. But, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. <laughs> who knows? God knows. <laughs> God looked at every possibility right here and said, yeah, I'm going to put you here. I'm going to choose to put you here. This is what will happen. But you have to choose to play your part in God be the glory. At the risk of your life, at the risk of your safety, you do that. Esther understood what one of our mantras we say here at Grace. Every believer is a minister. Every believer is a minister. We'll say, I'm just a pastor, but you're the... Right. And so, like, we could write this, we could use our own language. And who knows whether you have not become a minister for such a time as this. Let me say it a different way or the same way again. This is the best time for you to live. This is the best place for you to do the good deeds that Jesus Christ has arranged for you before time. Ephesians 2.10. Two ten. We are his workmanship, created for good works in Jesus Christ, that he arranged before time, right here, in the in the coulds and in all the woods, and he set us up right here. Just do everything that God has set you up to do for the glory of God. This is the right time. This is the right place. If it weren't, you'd be somewhere else at another time. Because all of that was negotiated right here in the middle knowledge. There's a frightening passage in uh, a book that C.S. Lewis, part of his space trilogy, called That, that Hideous Strength. And uh, I'll try to explain. <laughs> I hope, hopefully, I can explain this in a way that you, that you can grasp it without reading the book. But in That Hideous Strength, uh, the Earth is, is being taken over and is about to be destroyed by demon-possessed, a small group of demon-possessed individuals that have taken over. And the few good guys that are left on the planet, everybody else is just living their life, they're, 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 they call up, like resurrect a former hero in the old days, Merlin. 
And they resurrect him and they're going to have him help defeat the bad guys. And then there's this, there's this one encounter that frightens me. Every time I read it, it just it takes my breath away because of the subtlety of the sin of the person involved. It's not active, it's passive. The female lead is, meets Merlin for the first time, and the female lead is a, a, a wonderful person. She's young and ambitious, selfishly ambitious. She's making all of her choices for the sake of being comfortable and finishing her PhD and becoming a successful person. So much so that she and her husband have put off having children so they can get along with their careers. Now, when Merlin sees her, he knows everything that would have happened if she had chosen to wake up every morning and say, I'm completely surrendered to you. I will go anywhere at any time to do anything with anyone. And if that person would have chosen to live, she'd have been a different person that Merlin met because she was supposed to have a child. She was supposed to wake up every day and say, anytime, anywhere, for any reason, with anyone, and she would have heard the voice of God and she and her husband would have had a child. And Merlin says, that child would have set back evil for a thousand years. And the person comes back to Merlin and saying, because of so much anger that he has towards this woman, comes back and says to Merlin, hey, they, like, they're still married, they're still young, they can have their children. I mean, that child could still be born. And Merlin interjects this way. He understands the timeline and, and what could, would, and will happen. And Merlin says this. He said, uh, what she, could have, she, should, she could have set the enemies back a thousand years but be assured that that child, she can't have a child now, it won't be that child, it'll be a different child. The timeline continues, right? Be assured that that child will never be born, for the hour of its beginning is past. Of their own will, they have chosen to be barren, to not have children. For a hundred generations in two lines of begetting have prepared for this child to be born, and now it shall never be, because it can never be. You see? They missed the opportunity because they were consumed. They were just putzing through life. And the reason it's so shocking to me when I read it is because they're just making choices that are simple and career-oriented. And that's all it takes to kind of miss your place here, to waste your life, to just get a little distracted in front of a mirror. And the reason that scares me is because I think about how many times that I let like an argument in my marriage set for too long and, and like roots of bitterness take. And I think, I wonder, I wonder what my marriage could have, could have been used for, would have been used for if I would have been eager to apologize and take responsibility. What would my life be different if it weren't for just this small amount of pride? Or would, what, God, what, what could God have done with my career if I weren't always looking to be acknowledged or always looking for the next step up instead of asking anytime, anywhere, for any reason? With anyone, <laughs> what could I have been if I'd have just been more forgiving? See, that's, 
That's the dignity of human freedom being played out in a storyline where we get to choose if we're going to play our part and to God be the glory. And just like Merlin said, look at all that it took to get you here now. The hundreds of genealogies that got them ready to have this child and they chose not to for a simple reason. What about you and me, right? All the, like all that it took to get us right here, right now. Our life experiences, our education, right? our, 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 the evils we have suffered, the evils we've caused, the hardships that we've endured. And what do we do with our freedom? We make choices day after day, not considering the big storyline to God be the glory, and we just putz our way to the grave. We don't fully grasp the power of how we have been placed right here, right now, for this very purpose. The omniscience of God, (laughs) he has done he has done what he needs to do, and it's like we need to look at life like, like this is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made for me to glorify God and to make the most out of my life, to be focused on his will and not distracted by my own comfort. It's right here. It's right now. And this is the only right now there is. Some of us only have a few more years left. Some of you have 50. But after that, there's no more faith. There's no more hope because they're obsolete. <laughs> In the next life, you don't need faith. Faith in believing that God exists. He's right there. <laughs> you don't have to have hope in the attributes of God or the promises of God. They're all realized right in front of you. And so for the next 10 years or the next 50 years, we're supposed to be making choices that show that we have hope and faith in the majesty of God who is all-knowing. All the things that could happen, would happen, and will happen. And we come to a realization that we are here now for this very purpose. Let's start this year right. If you want to just know how to get started, think of all the things that happen you know, at the, on this campus so that you can make the most out of your life. There's an adult Sunday school class for every season of life. And for those that don't want a season of life, there's women's ministries and men's ministries, a dynamic youth group, a great children's ministry. Opportunities to serve and to volunteer, to play just a small part in God's church. <laughs> the, the scary part is, is we make choices to just sleep in. We're, we just continually decide, I'm going to sleep another hour and miss the significance of playing a role here. Every choice has a price tag, is kind of the consequence of the omniscience of God. Every choice we make has a price tag. I hope you appreciate that now. So, January 1st, 2023, is the moment that I get it. 
now I get it. Of all the possible times and all the possible places where I could have existed, God, not just in his natural knowledge, but in his mental knowledge, considering every infinite possibility has placed me here and now for me to seize the day. Because right now counts for eternity. Choose well. Join me in prayer. Yeah. <laughs> Let's pray. You're going to love these words. This is from God Almighty. Yahweh spoke these words. Yahweh, you have searched me and you know me. You know me when I sit down and when I rise up. You're omniscient. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all of my ways. Before a word even comes to my tongue, you know it completely. Oh, God Almighty. You are all about me, all around me, and you have laid your hand upon me. And such knowledge is too wonderful for me to understand, too lofty for me to, to obtain. <laughs> Amen. He's got the whole world in his hands, doesn't he? Got you and me, brother, in his hands. He's got you and me, sister, in his hands. He's got everybody here in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Yahweh God Almighty, you are a sovereign, ruling king. You are the great director, producer, the maker of a great story where you receive all the glory. And maybe today we get that. Lord, I'd ask that you'd allow us to start making decisions based on an absolute surrender to you, knowing the small choices make a big difference and they echo into eternity. Lord, help us to be dis disciplined, surrendered, that we might bring the joy of the Lord to everyone we touch. Our hearts and souls themselves just reverberate the awesomeness of your all-knowing love for us. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.